Hiring? With Indeed, your search is over. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash match. Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Episode 5, the Pure Hoops podcast. This is actually the 15th Pure Hoops media episode between our three shows. We are one month in, and uh, hopefully everyone out there who's listening is enjoying what we're doing. Uh, I, Eric Newman, am in Charlotte for NBA All-Star Weekend. BJ Armstrong will be joining me from L.A. We'll be chopping up his thoughts on present-day NBA All-Star, how All-Star Weekend has evolved, some of his past experiences there. Of course, talking a little bit about the Boston Celtics and their up-and-down week, along with the very, very exciting playoff race that is already taking shape in the NBA's Western Conference. You're listening to the Pure Hoops Podcast. Check ball. Let's go. The Pure Hoops Podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Pure Hoops Podcast most definitely does reflect the views of our management. Here's three-time NBA champ BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman. The Pure Hoops Podcast is brought to you by Pure Hoops Media. BJ and myself mix it up every Friday. We also have two other weekly shows. Catch and Shoot with Noah Kozlov and Adam Stanko drops every Wednesday. ESPN's John Barry was their guest this past week. Pure Hoops Media also presents The Wise Ass Show featuring Mike Wise. The Wise Ass drops in for his weekly visit on Mondays. Mike's guest this past Monday was Lakers owner Jeannie Buss, and they discussed everything from Magic to LeBron to why she bought a pair of Hugh Hefner's pajamas. Please download, subscribe, listen, rate, and most of all, enjoy. Tell your friends, they'll thank you, and so will we. It is 2019 NBA All-Star Week. The Pure Hoops podcast is coming to you from both Charlotte, North Carolina, where I sit right now with our executive producer, Bruce Bernstein, and Mr. B.J. Armstrong in Los Angeles, California. An exciting week uh, getting started here in Charlotte. And uh, my partner, B.J., I believe is happy to be getting some rest. B.J., how's the vibe out in L.A. With, without the madness going on? Well, it's great. And, um, you know, All-Star Weekend is a wonderful time for all of the NBA executives and NBA players and the NBA to really celebrate the first half of the season and come together with with all of their partners and business people from all around the world. So it's always a lot of fun. Charlotte, um, I'm sure, is going to do a terrific job there. I know uh, I spoke to Michael there a few weeks back, and I know they were really excited. He was really excited about it. And, uh, you know, Charlotte is a great city the Queen City, and uh, I'm, I'm sure you guys are having a wonderful time. Absolutely, and I'd be lying if I said I wasn't uh, properly taken care of by the NBA. I feel like I'm in uh, I'm in some sort of all-star basketball royalty, um, but the NBA, uh, they're good at a lot of things. One of them is, uh, is hospitality, so 
I am across the street from the Spectrum Center. People are starting to trickle into town, and uh, this will be the last time I repeat this uh, quote-unquote joke. But as they say here in Charlotte, BJ, you can really start feeling the buzz as uh, All-Star approaches. <laughs> okay, then. Moving right along. Yeah, moving along. Moving along. Moving along. It's uh, contagious here at the at the hotel. So, you know, you, you you started to share your thoughts about All-Star. It's really incredible what this weekend has turned into. You know, my first All-Star was uh, 10 years ago in Phoenix uh, when I was still a basketball coach and was able to get out there with a friend and, you know, experience some great things, events and, and conversations and meetings and whatnot. Um, with all the All-Stars you've seen, participated in, been to, what's your feeling on, on just how this thing has evolved over time? Well, I, I think it, you know, you know, many years ago, I think it was kind of the recognition of of being considered by your peers, by you know, coaches and the media of your craft of what you did, and um, really, they used the All Star Weekend to gain a, to gain attention, national attention, which went to international attention. To now, it's a, I mean, it's an event. All-Star Weekend is an event. I mean, it's just starting Thursday through Sunday night through the game, and it's just going to be one night after another of shining the light on whether it's rookies, international players, uh, events, partner relationships, and then the the icing on the cake is the NBA All-Star game itself. So it is a fun time, um, and when you're young and you have the energy to – to get maybe an hour, if any, any, no sleep at all, to do it for three, four nights in a row. It's a great weekend for someone like myself. Uh, I'm, I'm fighting for my eight hours. So, uh, but it, it, it's a great time. The NBA is, they do a wonderful job. And every city that I've gone, gone to the NBA uh, event, uh, the All Star Weekend, it's always been a lot of fun. And uh, they, they just do a, a terrific job year in and year out. And I know they put a lot of work and effort into it. Yeah, you know, we've started to talk about the relationships built through the game and those bonds formed over time. And I, and I feel like, you know, All-Star Weekend is, a, is another example of, of both celebrating that and, you know, creating those new ones. You never know who you're going to meet. You never know who you're going to be in a meaningful conversation with. You never know what's going to come of it. So, um, you know, that's always exciting as well, especially in this world. So, you know, I, I can flash back to you know, late 80s, early 90s, and, you know, checking that fan voting and the starters were, it was such a big deal. And then, you know, how many guys, if your team was having a winning season, could get on the all-star team. And, you know, so much has changed. And, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, was really, I think, a positive for the league and the sport is this you know, this draft that they did and, and this year finally having it televised with LeBron drafting his team and, and Giannis drafting his. What, what was your reaction to that um, coming to life? And what was your reaction to the actual execution of that this past week? Well, you know, it makes such a big deal that everything that we do now is, you know, is like everything you do is in front of a camera. So, uh you know, I, I, I tip my hat off to the players. I mean, you basically live your, you know, my I, I grew kind of grew up in the era where, you know, my public life was my public life and my private life is my private life, right? 
And now it is, we live in an era now where everything is public, right? Everything you do, how you draft, how you sleep, what are you eating, what are you doing is in front of the camera. So um, I guess it's fine. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know if, I, if it really means anything, you know, that you get a chance to see who they're drafting, I guess their reaction or what have you. But, uh, you know, I just think to be recognized as by your peers and people who, you know, cover this league and people who coach in this league, to be recognized for something you do at the highest level, I think in itself is, is, a, is a tremendous honor. So I leave it at that. All the other stuff, I just kind of take it as part of – you know, the, the, the circus that's going on around you. But I think all of those players who were voted or how, however they were put in the game should be commended for their efforts, for their talents, and what they're doing for their individual teams. I think it's tremendous for them. It's a tremendous honor, and it's something you'll cherish uh, and you'll look back on fondly that, you know, for a year or two or however long you're able to do it, year in and year out, something that you'll always remember that you know what, I, I, I achieved that level of success because uh, it's it's a lot of effort that goes into that. Yeah, I, I can't imagine the satisfaction. I mean, it's one thing to be, you know, a, a high-level player and win that popularity contest, but then, you know, to be voted in by your peers as a reserve and, and know that you have the respect of, you know, a, a high percentage of the league and, and to know that your your craft is respected, your uh, your just how you handle yourself, your dignity, uh, how you carry yourself as a as a professional, um, I, I can't imagine the the feeling of satisfaction there. Um, you know, quickly, you know, we we see the live draft. You know, I've heard people say, you know, they want to st- they'd want it in person and line the guys up, uh, you know, at half court, like you're showing up at the park to, to play fives, which, you know, everyone's got a, a two versions of the uniform. And then, you know, you, you go, you go, you go huddle with your team and play. Um, you know, is there anything, you know, we've seen changes in all-star weekend, obviously, you know, over the years, things have gotten a little bit stale. The three point contest at times, you know, lacked, uh, excitement, even though, you know, I'm safe to say you and I both love watching guys shoot the basketball. The dunk contest needed some changes. Um, is there is there anything you would change about the weekend to keep it entertaining but also add some intrigue to it? Well, I think the key is what you, you – the key word is keep it entertaining. And, you know, the, the truth of it is, is it, once the, the, the light is turned off, it's off. And what I mean by that is players aren't wired to play entertaining basketball. Either you play to win or you don't. It's just what it is. And yep. it's just what it is. Like, you know, Magic was fun to watch, right? Showtime was great. But when you looked at what he was doing – if you look broke down the tape and you watch Magic or you watch these entertaining players, Jordan or, you know, Clyde Drexler, players that we consider entertaining, you know, these, these, these players all play to win. And that's the difference. So, you know, it's fun, 
they're so highly skilled. They make it look entertaining. They make it look easy. But truthfully, they're playing to win, and they're doing the things they have to do to win that basketball game. So, um, and once you start playing in, a, in an entertaining way, then you're just you're 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 an entertainer. Uh, once you play yeah, to I mean, win, at the end of the, at the end of the day, it's it's an exhibition. It's an know? exhibition. So, if you want these guys to play hard, then give them something to play for. <laughs> you right. know, if you want it to be an entertaining game then just get the most entertaining players who want to play that way. But the players in this league that win are always going to play to win. That's just how you're wired to do it. So I get what it is. I, I, I think the players, you know, I, I, I recall when players went to the All-Star game back in our day where you were actually going to make a statement because you wanted mm-hmm. to make sure that, you had a competitive mental edge on the players you're going to see later in the playoffs. That's why you went to the All-Star game and you took it so serious because you wanted a competitive edge. You so know, that mind game, so that mind game was going on in a February at, All-Star at, well, game. No, no question. If you were there playing and you knew you were going to see the Pistons or you knew you were going to see the Celtics, you were playing for that competitive edge. You were, you, you were playing to psychologically get whatever advantage you can get from that. If you knew you were going to see – if you thought you were going to see a team in the West, Western Conference, you wanted to make sure that that player knew that when they did see you, that they were, you were going to have something to think about when you saw yeah. them. That's, that's how you that, – that, 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 that was the competitive spirit of that generation. I'm not and saying it's lost. I'm not saying it's lost, but certainly there was a purpose of going to the All-Star Weekend. And I don't know what, what it is today. I'm not privy to that. I'm not in the locker rooms anymore. But certainly, you know, I, I, I vividly remember when Scotty and Jordan and those guys went to the 92 Olympics. They went there with a purpose. And Jordan was clear that he wanted to establish himself, that he was going to be the greatest of the greatest there. And if anyone challenged that, he was going to take that challenge every day in practice to make sure that when everyone came off of that trip, there was no doubt who was the greatest player. Now, he went uh, to the All-Star Games with the same mindset. And I remember, I think in 90, I think Scotty, in 94, I want to believe, Scotty and I talked about that when he went there in 94 to establish himself if we, that he was going to be the best player in the Eastern Conference that year because that was the year Jordan wasn't there. And we were going to go there with the idea to establish that and establish it right from the get-go. I, I, and he won the MVP that year. Uh, that year uh, at the All-Star Game. But we were there, and myself, Horace Grant, Scotty were there with a purpose to try to make sure that we said the statement and and because we knew we were going to see the Knicks and we were minus Jordan. So, you know, we, we had to figure out a way to try to get a, whatever competitive advantage we could have. So, you know, I, I don't know if that's done as much anymore. You know, like I said, most of the, you know, the games now are entertaining, but back then we were always trying to look for a competitive edge and we used every opportunity to do that 
even though you know those guys were our friends, we were still looking for for an advantage in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, you're you're foreshadowing something I want to get to uh, a little bit later in the show about rivalries. But you know, you you take me right into asking you about 1994, your first All Star game. As you said, you're there with Scotty. You're there with Horace. And you know, at that time, you've beaten the Knicks uh, three straight years in the playoffs. Patrick Ewing is, you know, the the best center in the Eastern Conference, and and he's battling, uh, you know, eventually he battles Elijah Wan in the finals. But, you know, I was going to ask, what do you think it would have been like back in '87, '88, being a fly on the wall with Jordan, Isaiah, and Bird in the same locker room? But you were there in 94. So what was it like being in that room, you know, with Ewing, with Reggie Miller, with the guys that were all coming after you? Obviously, there's respect there, but what was the vibe like? Because then you got to go out there and be teammates on center stage for that All-Star game. Well, you know, you don't lose a Michael Jordan and and then, and, and then all of a sudden have the same expectations to be, you know, a championship caliber team. But we were a prideful group, uh, and we certainly recognize, you know, the importance of Michael Jordan. But also we understood that we were competitors, and we were just more than uh, a good team. We had some great players. And uh, we were able to, you know, not only get back to the playoffs, but we were able to advance. So we felt very good about our team. You know, we just, you know, we lost a very important piece, you know, the primary piece, if you will. Uh, He was our closer. So, uh, but we had to figure it out. So uh, what I loved most about that group and that team was that we accepted that challenge and we fought. And that's all you can ask. That that team fought. You guys won 55 games. Yeah, we we were, we won 55 games that year. Uh, Scotty had probably the greatest individual crew, you know, season of his career individually mm-hmm. uh i think the team won more regular season games than the previous year even though we had won the championship um horace had became an all-star myself we were beginning to show that you know what hey we, we lost a great player but we we continue to compete i you know phil has said it many times that that was his favorite team to coach in his entire nba career of what we were wow. able to do um it was just it was a, it was a it was a different challenge from a for all of us and we were all placed in different roles from a year ago but the thing i loved about the group in which that's all you can ask from any team is to reach your full potential and go out there and fight every night and that's what we did and uh you know minus michael jordan we still took the Knicks to what game 6 or game 7 if i recall i can't remember i'm, I'm too old now to remember game uh, game 7 at game the 7 right and we had a chance to win that game so yep. I, I mean how many people can lose a talent like jordan and still take a team in in the in advance in the playoffs to game 7 and that's what we were all about and we had a chance to win on the road if i remember correctly so th- that yep. group that team was a terrific team. We piecemealed it together. It wasn't like we were able to prepare. You know, Jordan had retired uh, late. You know, sometime yeah, in he September, retired October. In, he retired in the fall, right before. Yeah. right before. So training we camp. piecemealed yep. it together. It was kind of built on the fly, and everyone took the challenge. And we went out there. We didn't make an excuse. 
and that to me is what the NBA and that's what life is all about. You know, hey, you, this was the hand we were dealt. We we played and we went on and we went and fought every every for everything we got. So uh, the Knicks were a great team. Uh, they had some great players, great coaches. But you know what? We 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 fought and uh, that was a great that was a great time for us. Great team, and uh, you know we came up a little short. But you know what? It it, it was. It's, it's what this league is all about. You have to compete. So, you know, and we tried. We did the best we could, and we moved on. But you don't lose Jordan or, or talent like that and and because and, you need that talent. You need that talent to finish a game. And if we had Jordan in a game seven, I, I, I feel I felt confident then, but I would feel even more confident now with a guy who's averaging 35 a night <laughs> playing yeah. on your side. Yeah, it would have uh, continued to uh, haunt the dreams of Nick, Nick fans everywhere, which uh, is still humorous all these years <laughs> later. Um, so re- real quick, just back to All-Star. You know, another guy you played with on the Bulls, uh, Mr. Craig Hodges. Yes. He won three three-point shootouts in a row following Larry Bird winning three in a row. And... Um, you know, putting you on the spot right now, you and Hodges, post-practice, there must have been a shootout somewhere along the way. Talk to me. Did you guys ever shoot it out? Uh, Craig was Craig was an incredible, incredible shooter, right? I mean, you know, every player has a, a talent or a gift. Craig had an incredible gift to shoot, and I was fortunate to play with some incredible shooters. You know, John Paxson was an amazing shooter. Steve Kerr, incredible shooter. Craig Hodges, Trent Tucker, you know, uh, Bobby Hansen. So I was, you know, I was always well, around. it's not every day you get a back-to-back Trent Tucker, Bobby Hansen pull. Yeah, yeah, That's I mean, you, you, these guys can shoot. I mean, they, yeah. uh, you know, and, you know, I, I, think people, I was. I think people forget, sorry to cut you off, I think people forget how many good shooters were on those teams in different stages? And obviously yeah. you just named them, but you had different combos of guys. And obviously you and Paxson together first is a great example of that. But a lot of good shooters were on that team. And, and even some front court guys too. You know, I remember Bill Wennington knocking down, you know, 17-foot yeah. jump shots playing his role. So a lot – and obviously when Tony Kuko came to the team, who was part of that 94 team right. as well, his first season there, uh, a, a lot of good shooting. Yeah, it, it was it was that was the one thing that you always saw in the NBA is, you know, you, there were guys like Dale Ellis. And of course, you know, there's Larry Bird. There was Reggie Miller, uh, you know. You know, there was just so many Chris Mullen. I mean, just the list goes on and on and on of guys who could like exceptional shooters. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, shooting wasn't, you know, you know, guys. You, you, you just knew, like Joe Dumars, you just knew that, you know what, I, my big thing with, with, with Craig Hodges, I remember he would always encourage me to make the shots when you're open. He said that was the key to being a good shooter. And for whatever reason, he told me that, and that just stuck out to me. And, and one day he was shooting, and, you know, he could just get on. He, could, he, was, he was very, very streaky. You know, he could just – you know, if he got hot, he just got hot. Just, to, you know, he was just that type of shooter. But he told me the key to shooting was find a shot you knew you can make. And that was the key to shooting. 
And that's what I tried to do in my NBA career. I always tried to shoot the shots I knew I could make. And I didn't worry about what I couldn't do. I didn't worry about the shots that I weren't good at. I always shot the shots that I knew I could make. And I think that was probably a mindset back then. You know, John Paxson wasn't trying to shoot off the dribble. That wasn't his game. (laughs) You know, Steve Kerr wasn't trying to split the double team and come up with a – of a running one uh, one leg push shot, sort of like Mark Price. Mark Price was a great shooter, but that was Mark Price's shot. You shot the shots you yep. knew you could make. So I think the mindset was a little different, and that's probably why you saw guys shoot at a higher percentage then than they do now. Um, so um, well, yeah, I mean you had you had two two Hall of Fame playmakers creating situations for you to do exactly what you just said: make the open shot. And, and you guys all played into that role um, exceptionally well, Horace Grant included. I mean, everybody. Yeah, you, you, you had to. I mean, once Jordan figured, figured out, I mean, early in his career, he averaged 36, 37 a night. I mean, the guy probably could have easily, and this was doing hand checking, he could have mm-hmm. easily averaged 40 points a night, right? I mean, he, but he figured out that if he could spread the floor, and create space for himself to operate when he needed to operate, it was going to make the game that much easier for him because he wasn't playing one-on-one basketball. He was always playing one versus two, one versus three. In many instances, like the Pistons, it was, uh, you know, the Jordan the Jordan rules. He's playing one against five. So he just kind of figured out the spacing on the floor of what he needed to do to operate on the floor by playing with shooters. And once he figured out how to manipulate the game, if you will, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like watching Steph Curry play. Steph Curry, you know, I don't think he gets enough credit for how creative he was to create more space on the floor. All great players need space to be great. Um, and Steph Curry is great in the sense that he just went further and further back to shoot, and which created more space on the floor for him. And now he drives, he shoots twos, he shoots runners, he shoots floaters. But by him going three, four feet behind the three-point line created more space on the floor to do other things in his game, which, uh, you know, I think all great players figure that out. So he just figured out how to create space. I think Jordan figured it out. And all the great players figured out how to create space on on the floor so that they can be great. Tremendous time for a pivot and transition here. Another stellar perimeter player who has figured that out is none other than Kyrie Irving. And um, this week, the Celtics following two, in my opinion, horrific losses to both teams from L.A., blowing big leads at home, looking fairly disinterested while doing so, go on the road to Philadelphia without Kyrie, who was injured in that Clippers game. And they play one of their best games of the season against the Sixers, who are feeling like they're sky high right now, acquiring Tobias Harris and and all the hype around them. And the Celtics win their third game of the season against Philadelphia after beating them last year in the playoffs, four games to one. And I believe, as, as Bruce told me before the show, the Celtics have now beaten Philadelphia 10 out of the last 12. So... Before I get into how special that rivalry uh, remains, dating back decades, what is your take on 
the Celtics. And we've talked about the journey to trying to get to the top of the mountain. And I've dismissed this point every single time someone has said it to me. But after watching the game the other night and how inspired they played and the ball finding the open man and it didn't matter who was taking the shot, I have to ask your opinion. Are the Celtics a better collective team without Kyrie Irving in the lineup? And I just feel crazy asking it. Well, here's the truth of the matter. No one will say it because, you know, it's more fun to say that and stir up controversy and, and do the things. Okay, the, the short answer to that is no. You, you don't take a Kyrie Irving out of the lineup and you become a better team. Because every coach knows in this league, who's ever coached in that league, knows that when you enter into the playoffs, which is a totally different game than the regular season, you have to have a minimum of two players who can go get you 30 to 35 points on any given night. Okay? Yep. If you're going to win in the playoffs, I'm not talking during the regular season where you can have a good game in one of 82. I'm talking you have to go and be able to do this multiple times, four, maybe four or five times in a series. Now, Kyrie Irving is one of those players. So that's the short answer. Now, Couldn't the makeup of a great that. team. Yeah, the makeup of a team, okay, which the Celtics clearly have the capability to do this, is you have to do three things in order to be a great team. Not a good team, but a great team. A great team has to defend. They have to secure the ball once they have that great defensive possession, and then they have to share the ball. Now, what the Celtics have done is they have a bunch of players that can grind it out. Marcus Smart, uh, is it Mar- Markeith Morris? Is that Markeith? I think is no uh, Marcus. Morris. Marcus and actually Morris. and actually Markeith, Markeith just landed with the Thunder on his buyout. We'll get to that yeah. in a moment. So but Marcus have, Morris, Marcus Smart, Marcus Morris. You have Marcus Smart. You have the Terry Kid. You have Al Horford. All those guys are just grinders. They can just grind it out. Mm-hmm. They just grind the game. Defensively, they can. The one thing that allows the Celtics, you know, because this league is all about matchups. The Celtics are perhaps one of the only teams that don't really have to double-team Joel Embiid because Al Horford can play him. Al Horford can grind it out. He can grind it out with him. And he can keep it honest not only on the defensive end. Joel Embiid has to expend that much energy grinding Al Horford because Al Horford is clever enough to be able to get a 20-12 and 12 rebound game against him. Oh, he's pulling him out of the paint at every okay, opportunity. Absolutely. Now, this is, that's, a, that's a great matchup. That's a great – if you say you got Joel Embiid and I got Al Horford, I feel good about that matchup because Al Horford is talented enough, strong enough. He's, he's a very clever player who can handle Joel Embiid. Now, is he as talented Joel Embiid? No. But if Joel Embiid isn't on his A game, Al Horford is capable of outplaying him, which he had a great game the other night on the road. So Al Horford is capable. Then you have Marcus Smart, who is a grinder. He can affect the game without scoring. Marcus Morris can do the same. Terry can do the same. Now that allows the other players, Gordon and these guys, Tatum, who aren't really the grinder-type players. They're more like skill-type players. Now their skill is sprinkled in with the grinders, and you have a totally different team. So – 
when you have Kyrie Irving, Kyrie Irving's talent is going to surface somewhere during the course of the game. He's too good. I mean, the, the, he can do a lot of different things. When he's out of the lineup, that's a totally different team. It's not saying it's better or worse. It's just a totally different team. The yep. one thing, the one thing that I think Kyrie is learning, and I think Kyrie would probably agree with this. If Kyrie Irvin could learn to grind a game out just on the defensive end without allowing his impact just to be on as an offensive player, that would in, that would increase the team of the Celtics tenfold. Because now the identity of their team is on the defensive end as compared to the offensive end because Kyrie's offense is that dominant of a player. Jordan, the reason Jordan is, 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 is such a dominant player or was a dominant player is because, yes, he scored 35 a night. But secretly, he was, he, he was a grinder. He could yeah. grind the well, game what out. You, what, what you shared with me a few weeks ago about him, you know, talking trash only on defense and owning yeah, that matchup. Could, I mean, it, it now, totally plays to that. Yes. And, and, so and it, you know, it's it, – sorry, you, you first, and then I'll follow up no, with No, 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 I'm just saying that. So the identity of the Celtics when Kyrie is not in the game is a defensive one. And if Kyrie could uh, – adopt that way of thinking along with his offensive skill set, Kyrie now's game goes into another whole plateau. And I'm not, I'm not saying that he can't do it. I'm just saying that's what it is. You have to be able to grind a game out in this league. Those other guys are grinders and the most dominant players, the Warriors are a team where, yes, they are a phenomenal offensive team, but they can grind the game out. And that's yep. the difference. That is the difference there. And I think the Celtics, with Terry on the floor, you see all of those things more consistently when, you, when he's not. But Kyrie is such a dominant offensive player. He's an incredible offensive player. He's one of the top five offensive players in this league, no doubt about it. And but he's an elite closer, too. He's an elite closer, and you can't win. So it's kind of like, you know, well, which one do you pick? You can't yeah. be a better team without Kyrie Irving. This so and, and where I get where I and where I get really torn is he has put more effort into being a better defensive player this season. He yes. has been more of a floor general. He yes. has gotten on the floor more than I've ever seen, and he's gotten on the offensive glass. So I'm just I'm just all over the place with how I feel about the ups and downs of this team. I mean, the Rondo shot at the buzzer was was one thing. The Lakers shot the heck out of the basketball because the Celtics hit the snooze button and they got into rhythm and they got confident. And as as Brad Stevens said, and, and you and I, I know we agree, like the basketball gods just have a funny way of making sense of things. And so ironic, you have Kevin Garnett sitting courtside in a Rondo jersey and Rondo makes the game winner. I mean, you, you can't script something like that. But then to come out the next game against the Clippers and do that – that's just a just just well, it was it was it was a shit show of a performance and yeah, to see well, them bounce yeah. back without Kyrie was just really interesting. Well, I, I'm going to say this, you know this this league now is a is a league that's predicated. It's really a a, a point guard driven league at the moment, and mm-hmm. you can't play in today's game without your primary ball handler being able to attack the other team's defense. Meaning James Harden. 
I don't know if he's a point guard, but he is definitely the primary ball handler who is putting pressure on the opposing team's defense every single time down the floor. Okay, so Russell you, Westbrook. So you say so you saying the days of Haywood Workman and Charlie Ward are long gone. Well, uh, no, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is in today's game, you have to have a player who can do that. I got you. You have to do that. You know, this kid for Sacramento, uh, what's the kid's name? I can't think of his name right now. De'Aaron Fox. De'Aaron Fox. He just puts so much pressure on him because he's, he's constantly attacking you. You know, yep. the Derrick Roses, the Russell Westbrooks, the Kyrie Irvins, you have to have that player who's constantly attacking. Now, the one thing about Doc Rivers, which is Doc Rivers is always figuring out a way to have a way to be consistently in the game. And if you look at his team, right, he just traded the one kid, Avery Bradley, which I'm sure probably they had to do for financial purposes. Mm-hmm. But he has two guards who are incredible, incredible defensive players. This kid, Shea Alexander, is an incredible defensive player. Special As talent. A, he, he, so that's one. And then the other kid, Patrick Beverly, is a, well, he's a former defensive player of the year. Okay. Now, that allows him to match up against opposing teams, great offensive players, night in and night out, which gives his team defense, his team defense, just a little breathing room. And the difference between winning and losing is always just the little things, just the details. Now, being able to have your best defensive players on the perimeter like he has gives him an advantage, which you don't see often in his league. Those two, along with Avery Bradley, that's why they were playing so well. Now, we don't yep. look at them as, like, a great team. But defensively on the perimeter with Avery, uh, Oh, they get Shea, after it. They get they after get, They get there's, after you. There's nothing easy. There's nothing easy there. They're, and what's the one thing that dogs, man. Yeah, what, what, and what's the one thing we're all doing? Everyone's dribbling the ball, playing screen roll, attacking. That They don't they dis- think about they it. They disrupt that. They yep. disrupt that. Now, that's a very dis- – so your team – it's built on, you know, you got Kyrie Irving and these guys, these guys just get after it and they can match up. You know, they can switch. They have multiple players. They're, 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 they're decent. So, again, when you start looking at the players and how these teams are being constructed, when you can construct your team on the defensive end first, that allows you to be consistent in a way where you don't even have to worry about your offense. So I'm not taking yep. away anything from – but I don't want to discredit that, 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 that Clipper team because those two guys are playing a different game. That kid, Shea Alexander, as a rookie, he's taking on the other team's best offensive player as a rookie, and that is very – he reminds me of remember, like Alvin Robertson and those guys who could just oh, guard. Yeah. He could just guard multiple positions because of his size, his strength, his quickness. This kid is like 6'5", and he's taking on like – all of the other teams like lead guards as a rookie. Um, yeah, I, it's, it's it's surprising how many teams passed on him, but it's also yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, it's, uh, but it's eye opening how quickly he's adjusted oh, to it's, it's incre- playing and in then, the NBA. And then you're playing with, and then you're playing with, with the uh, Patrick Beverly. So he's got to be learning something. And then the other kid, which I don't think gets enough credit as a as just a talent, right? I mean, the guy is a human scorer. Is this guy Lou Williams? Okay, this guy, this kid, Lou Williams, he, I mean, he'll get 40 in the blink of an eye. All right, I watched, him, yeah. I watched him last night. The guy scored 30 points, 
and didn't break a sweat. <laughs> uh, he he's one of those guys that is so silky smooth. He makes it look so easy. He's yeah. Yeah. he's uh, such a problem to, to to guard. And and you know, perfect perfect pivot moment here. You know, the Clippers, despite you know. Uh, trading Tobias Harris, th- th- they're going to remain competitive. Doc has said they're not mailing it in by any means. No, you know we've played not. we've played we've played two thirds of the season. So when we come out of the All Star break here, um, you know there is a game. To, there are a couple of games tonight, but entering Thursday night, the Blazers are the fourth seed in the West. The Lakers are the tenth seed. Only six games in the loss column separate. All those teams. So my question for you is, who's going to make that push going down the stretch? And obviously LeBron's back in the lineup. Lakers get a deep breath now with All-Star. We know the Warriors. We know the Thunder. We know the Nuggets have been operating at a high level. In that 4-10 to range, is there one team that sticks out who's going to make a, a, a real push as we head down the stretch? You know, defensive, I always look at the teams who can ramp up the game. You know, you, you can't just ramp up your offense, but you can ramp up your defense. Um, you know, Sacramento has been an interesting team because of their youth and the energy that they bring to the game. I mean, they that's a tough team to play, especially on a back-to-back. And, and they are getting more and more confident, especially at home, of the way they play. I mean, that is a, that's a tough out for any team, the way Sacramento uh, Minnesota has been playing much better, and they've been much more consistent. They had a good win, I think, right before the break against the uh, Houston Rockets. Um, I think def- I think they're beginning to settle in about who they're going to be. Uh, you know, Teague has been out a little bit. Derek has been out, and they have. I think they have good enough guard play uh, on both ends of the court to keep you honest every single night, and defensively. I think they have enough bodies to throw at the other team's wing players. So I, I, mm. I, I would venture to say Sacramento, Minnesota uh, are the teams. Yeah, Minnesota, think, and, and Min- yeah. yeah, and Minnesota is actually sitting right behind the Lakers. And, and, I mean, and, if you, and, if, and the Clippers, because, look, Doc is one of my favorite coaches. I mean, Doc is, I mean, Doc is never going to mail it in. Yep. Doc's teams are always going to be prepared, and I can tell you this. They're going to fight for 48 minutes. All right? They may not play well, but I can guarantee you Patrick Beverly and, and company, because he's the ringleader of that entire group, right? He, he is going to be ready, and he's going to be game for the fight. And they're going to find a way to grind it out. They're going to find, they have enough guys like Gallinari and these guys who can put the ball in the basket, and they're going to be prepared, and they're going to have a game plan to win the game. So... I think those three teams for me are going to ones that I'm going to say, you know what, I'm going to look for them, especially in the second half, to really kind of make a push and really fight for that, for the, you know, that 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 sixth, seventh, eighth spot. Yeah, I mean, if if you go down through Dallas, who's at 12 right now with 31 losses, the Blazers sit in fourth place with 23 losses. Dallas is in 12 with 31. It's eight games between four and 12. I mean, it's it's got the makings of. And, and I said this last year, it's got the makings of its own March Madness coming out of the break because every night something positioning's on the line and, and you've gotta you've gotta keep pace, you've gotta get ahead and, and you look at uh, you know, Houston is nine over with Chris Paul, 
just you know getting back into the lineup, and obviously Harden's streak has carried them. The Utah Jazz are uh, right behind them. The Spurs, I mean, Popovich has done an unbelievable job with all of these these injuries and the lineup shifting. They're seven over five hundred, so there, there's a ton there. Um, it's it's going to be. It's going to be a really fun month of of important and intense games because you know you could win three in a row and shoot up you know four spots in the standings. You lose three in a row, you could fall out of it. So it's um it, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, quickly here, you know we we've talked rivalries a little bit with things that you've experienced. Aside from Celtics Lakers. Is there a is there a player rivalry or a, a memorable rivalry that you watched growing up before, let's say, you uh, went to Iowa? Is there a rivalry that had an impact on you watching that you remember as a kid? Well, you know, growing up in Michigan, uh, growing up in Detroit, you know, the Michigan Ohio State rivalry was that was always a a, a big deal and. You know, that kind of, you know, the great, you know, Bo, I can remember Bosham Beckler and, and and Woody Hayes. And I just remember that was just like in Michigan, at least in our, in our house, that, that was one of those games that you watched, right? And yeah. it didn't matter what was going on. It didn't matter if you lost every game, <laughs> you know, you needed to win that game. Or, mm-hmm. you know, as – in Michigan, you know what? If you were fourteen and one and you lost that game, the season was—it was a bad season. It was a disaster. It was yep. a disaster. Yep. Yep. So that game to me is where I first learned how to play in big moments. I watched that because some of my friends and you know guys who were older than me who you know played at the University of Michigan and and they would talk about that game and I would see how they would put so much emphasis on that game and the details and learning how to play in big moments and learning how to. So that was my first kind of eye opener to what a rivalry meant. You know, it didn't really matter what you did the week before or the week after. That was the game that everyone pointed to. And that was always a big rivalry. So that Michigan Ohio State rivalry was like those were like life lessons for me growing up in Detroit of how to be prepared for a big game, a big moment, and what a rivalry really, you know, was all about. And and I'm sure, it, you know, I didn't go to Michigan or Ohio State, but I'm sure there was a lot of respect in between all of the emotions. But it was always a it was a big thing in this in the state of Michigan anyway, to to watch that game and participate as a as a Michigan fan growing up. You know, it's funny you picked that because uh, my oldest friend from three years old through today and we played all sports together including varsity basketball which was an incredible experience for us uh, on Long Island he went to University of Michigan and I played uh, Division 3 football at Ithaca College where our rival was Cortland State and ironically we were blue and white not exactly Michigan colors but Cortland was red and white not exactly Ohio State but close and that was known as the biggest little game in the country uh, which Sports Illustrated titled it um, actually when you were in college in the late 80s. But we had an off week my sophomore year, which was 1997, and I went to the University of Michigan to see Michigan versus Iowa. And it was the Charles Woodson year that they won the national championship. And your Iowa Hawkeyes were up 21 
7 or 21-10 at the half of that game, and the entire big house was silent. They thought the season was going to go down the tube. They knew they had to win this game and set up the big matchup later with Ohio State to get to the Rose Bowl. And Charles Woodson and just the whole crew came out on fire in the second half. And they took over that game and won it. And the experience of seeing it live was incredible. But then watching with interest what that Charles Woodson-David Boston-Michigan-Ohio State game was like that November and watching it intently was extremely memorable. And and hearing the stories about that rivalry and, and getting a little taste of it because I was able to go out to Michigan and experience that was was uh, was pretty special. And it's funny, I was, I was, we're about to close up here, but I was, I was sharing with Bruce before the show. Um, I had an early flight this morning to get to Charlotte. And, you know, by the time I was all packed up and, and ready to get a few hours of sleep, I realized that um, my high school basketball team, who's still coached by uh, the coach that coached me and my crew, you know, so many years removed, he was 28, 29 when he was my head coach, when my senior year was 96. He had squeaked them into the Nassau County playoffs, and they had a, an outer bracket game, basically, you know, the right to get in and play a high seed. And Belmore JFK, where I went, gets matched up with Calhoun High School, and they're from the same town. So if you grow up in my town going to a certain middle school, you're going to middle school with people that are becoming your rivals in high school. And I, I wrote him a note the day before, just remind the guys that we don't lose to Calhoun. And I checked the score in, uh, online at 1 o'clock in the morning, and it read Belmore JFK 50, Calhoun 48. And uh, all these years later, those rivalries still mean something. And dropped the note to uh, the email chain this morning to all the guys, and then the chatter started. And by the time I landed in Charlotte, there were 25 emails flying back and forth because it still means something 20-plus years removed. And it's, it's pretty powerful and it's pretty special. That's a great story. Thanks. You sound in- incredibly entertained. Yeah, <laughs> that was an incredible story. Thanks for sharing, Eric. <laughs> I will. Uh, I'll, I'll send you that VHS when I get around to it. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> uh, I will. I will. So, um, last thing, actually, we're, we're going to close the show, and then we're going to do a little bonus. So, uh, this was great from Charlotte. Eric Newman, B.J. Armstrong. Special thank you to Bruce Bernstein, Jeff Torini and the whole Pure Hoops media crew. We will be bringing you more content from All-Star Weekend as it presents itself, as there's going to be many, many friends of the program who we hopefully will get some time with. And BJ, I'll be checking in with you uh, once we get out of here. I'm going to leave you alone for the weekend and and let you get some rest. But great job today, my friend. Thank you, and uh, have a great time down there. And they have great food down there, Eric, so be sure to you know, uh, chow down and enjoy the festivities and uh, and try to get a little sleep in between. Uh, don't stay out too night. Don't stay out too late at night. I will check in with you on the curfew and, and hit you up for those restaurant recommendations. Right, the Pure Hoops you. podcast, Pure Hoops Media. We are out. See you soon. The Pure Hoops podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.